On November 12, 1966, in remote Clendenin, West Virginia, a group of gravediggers working in a cemetery spotted something that stopped them dead in their tracks. Something huge soared over their heads as they stood still, gripped with fear and awe. They claimed it was a massive brown human being that leapt, perhaps flew, rapidly from tree to tree. Three days later, in the sleepy town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, the serenity of the autumn evening was shattered by fearful, panicked screams. Two young couples, Dickie and Linda Scarberry, and Steve and Mary Mallett, sped from the dark woods as they fled what they described to the police as a terrifying creature. Ten-foot wingspan and glowing red eyes. They told the Point Pleasant Register that the beast was able to fly at incredible speeds, perhaps as fast as a hundred miles an hour. All of them agreed that the beast was clumsy on the ground. It allegedly chased their vehicle to the outskirts of town in the air and then skittered away into the field and disappeared. It was like a man with wings, Mallet said. It wasn't like anything you'd see on TV or in a monster movie. They were in Scarberry's car between 11.30 p.m. and midnight when they spotted the creature near the power plant adjacent to the old National Guard armory buildings. I'm a hard guy to scare, Scarberry said, but last night I was for getting out of there, and they did just that. But the thing followed them. They said it was hovering above the car, apparently gliding, until they reached the National Guard armory on Route 62. We went downtown, turned around, and went back, and there it was again, Mallet said. It seemed to be waiting on us. He said that the light gray creature then scurried through a field. It had also flown across the top of their car. It apparently is afraid of the light, Mallet reasoned, and maybe it thought it was scaring us off. The young men said they saw the creature's eyes, which glowed red, only when their lights shined on it, and it seemed to want to get away from the lights. Both were slightly pale and tired from lack of sleep during the night following their harrowing experience. They speculated that the thing was living in the vacant power plant, possibly in one of the huge boilers. If I had seen it while I'd been by myself, I wouldn't have said anything, Scarberry commented. But there were four of us who saw it. They said it didn't resemble a bat in any way, but maybe an angel? The last time they saw it was at the gate of the C.C. Lewis farm on Route 62. They heard a sound like wings flapping, and they said the bird rose straight up like a helicopter. This doesn't have an explanation to it, Mallet said. It was an animal, but nothing like I've seen before. Are they going back to look for the creature? Yes, Mallet said, this afternoon and again tonight. Today, Scarberry said, but tonight, I don't know. The Gettysburg Times reported eight additional sightings in the short span of three days after the first claims. This included two volunteer firefighters who said they saw a, quote, very large bird with large red eyes. Newell Partridge, a resident of Salem, West Virginia, claimed that he saw strange patterns appearing on his television one night. And he followed a mysterious sound just outside of his home. He shone a flashlight toward the direction of the noise. He supposedly witnessed two red eyes looking back at him. Partridge's dog went on the attack to protect his home and his master, but was never seen again. On December 15, 1967, after a year and a month of frequent sightings of the enigmatic Mothman, 
The silver bridge that connected Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and Gallipoli's Ohio collapsed. The tragedy claimed 46 lives, and many saw the creature as a warning of the event, a portent of things to come. But this story isn't about the Mothman, at least not directly. No, this tale begins back on November 2nd, 1966. Welcome back to Dispatch Ajax. I am Skip. I am Jake. That's true. Today, we are talking about an enigmatic character in cryptid lore. I think one that doesn't get enough recognition in that community. He's like a weird crossover between cryptozoology and ufology. Because he's tied inextricably to the Mothman, but also is an alien. Well, possibly. Possibly an alien. Possibly a Huxer. Possibly just a, a passerby who seemed odd. It's also possible that he's not tied to the Mothman at all, which would negate the whole cryptid thing. Yeah, 100%. We don't know. I think timing, proximity, and John Keel's interaction, which kind of tied them all together. Yep. Forever linking the Mothman and Indrid Cold. Indrid Cold. Which, by the way, awesome name. Oh, Super awesome name. Yes, we wanted to cover Intercold because he's such a different. Everybody's done Mothman. We wanted to get to, into something that was, I, I think, quite frankly, more interesting than the Mothman. Because you know the Mothman thing, you can kind of. It's fascinating, but the lore of the Mothman and his purpose has only been really in the modern era. Before he was just a thing that people saw. He was an actual cryptid. And then later, weird harbinger of doom. But Intercold, I think, remains a fascinating character that no one has ever been able to really nail down. Except for a poor Appalachian sewing machine salesman <laughs> named Woodrow Derenberger. Let's set the scene. It's November 2nd, 1966. Picture it, Sicily, 1925. Woodrow Derenberger was a typical Appalachian man and a salesman of a sewing machine company. He lived in Mineral Wells, West Virginia. On Wednesday, November 2nd, 1966, at about 7.30, while he was returning from Marietta, Ohio to his home, driving on I-77, he encountered something very strange. He was driving in his red panel truck in Parkersburg, West Virginia, and he noticed some lights that were coming from behind him. He thought at first that they might be police lights, so he got off the road, and then he saw that they were coming from a flying metallic cigar-shaped craft. In fact, Woodrow described it as being a kerosene lamp chimney. At least that's what it looked like to him. 
we will all leave the earth in a cigar-shaped UFO brand saucer. <laughs> the mysterious ship traveled right by his truck and then blocked the roadway ahead and gradually made him slow down to a stop on the side of the road. It was there that the aircraft completely stopped was then hovering about 12 inches off the road. A door to the craft with latches opened out and a being exited the ship. Rocky! Sex Files. It's... Oh, okay. That's the Woody Derenberger story. The guy the guy that does the Lord Ken boat? That's, that's Woody Derenberger. That's what they're yeah, doing. It, it, it's been a long time since I've seen X-Files. I, it's been a long I time since you rock and rolled, man. <sighs> you, get, you get to be a certain age, my friend. The opening scene of Jose Chung's From Outer Space is basically recounting the Woody Derenberger story. Hmm? Kind mm-hmm. of. Kind of. I mean, really, it's the guy that is in his garage that gets a, a, a meeting from uh, Jesse Ventura and Alex Trebek. But um, <laughs> he's the one that wrote the, the manuscript where and Lord Kenboat takes him down into the inner earth and shows him all the wonders. Of the, I mean, that's, that's, that, that is Der- Woody Derenberger. I mean, that's, that's what they're doing. After this being exited, the door to the ship slammed closed with a loud thunk behind him. Later, the vehicle climbed about 50 feet into the air above the highway, and that being walked right up to Derenberger's truck window. Derenberger described the being as looking like an ordinary man on the street. Do you have any change? <laughs> Six feet tall. <laughs> about 35 years of age, but with an olive complexion, dark brown hair, and wearing a oddly glossy metallic-looking dark blue coat. Some accounts told of the man having a wide grin, but I think from the original accounts, that isn't there. Supposedly, he did have a smile, but whether it was Joker-esque or not... Or Cheshire Cat-like. Exactly. The man spoke out to Woody, and it took him a little while to realize that when he spoke, his lips weren't moving. The man was speaking to Woody telepathically. The man looked through the truck window, saying something along the lines of, Roll down your window. I want to talk to you. Woody said, He asked me to roll down the window on my right-hand side of my truck. I don't know why I'm making him sound like this, but I think this is how he's going to sound. I'm confused by this as well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's Appalachian man, right? That's true, he is. Worst superhero of all time. (laughs) And I'd done what he asked, Darren Burr said during an interview. And this man stood there, and he first asked me what I was called. And I know he meant my name. And I told him my name, and he asked me, Why are you frightened? Don't be frightened. We wish you no harm, he said. We mean you no harm. We wish you only happiness. And what do you call And when I told him my name, he said he was called Cold. Cold conveyed to Woody that he was a searcher and that he wasn't the only one. Cold told Derenberger he should go ahead and talk to the authorities about this encounter and that he would confirm this event on Woodrow's behalf at a later date. Cold claimed that his country wasn't as powerful as ours. When Cold saw the lights from nearby Parkersburg, West Virginia, he asked, 
What is that over there? To which Derenberger responded, it was Parkersburg. Cold then asked if that was where local residents lived. And Derenberger told him that it was where business was conducted and that people lived in neighboring suburbs. When it appeared that Cold was satisfied with the answers Derenberger had provided, he stated, It's been nice talking to you, Mr. Derenberger. We will be seeing you again. I'd also like to interject that from what I read, they did say all that, but also Injured Cold had asked, well, what is that? And he said, it's Parkersburg. And then Injured Cold was like, what is that? And he was like, uh, it's a city. And Injured Cold was like, well, we would call that a gathering. That's I, uh, Yeah, of course you would. I mean, it's not important, but it's another detail. But yeah. Just more strangeness. Word shit. So after this encounter, Cold then left the side of the vehicle, returned to his ship, and flew away. Derenberger drove to Parkersburg and talked to the police. By the next day, the media frenzy surrounding the story took off. Derenberger agreed to be interviewed live on television on WTAP in Cincinnati. Baby, if you've ever wondered. Oh, we have, we have so many references to that show. Good. Taking part in the interview were members of the state police, representatives of the Wood County Airport, the Parkersburg Police, and a representative from the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. For any of you uh, hardcore paranormalists or UFO experts, uh, we all know Wright-Patterson quite well. Damn right. For 30 minutes, the men peppered Derenberger with questions about the strange encounter. After the interview aired, however, others came forward with claims that they had also seen a figure matching Derenberger's description of Indrid Cold. One man supposedly reported that a man matching Indrid's cold description tried to flag him down, but he was too afraid to stop. Other people claimed to see lights and quote-unquote fluttering vehicles on the road. During the Mothman craze, Derenberger and other residents of Point Pleasant claimed to have more encounters with the entity who called himself Cold. Uh, this is also where the reports become stranger and stranger. For example, it is eventually revealed that the entity's full name was Indrid Cold, although Derenberger later claimed that there were two more grinning men, one named Carl Ardo and another named Demo Hassan. But did he claim that they were grinning men? Because that was something that was attributed later. We will get into this grinning man debate. All right, fair enough. As we get into other supposed claims of injured cold. But Derenberger had many more encounters with injured cold himself. Supposedly, injured cold took Derenberger on a trip in space <laughs> to the place that he supposedly came from. The planet of Lanulos in the Ganymedes galaxy. Oh, Jesus Yes, very likely 100% factual. Do you realize how far away galaxies are? Uh, hop, skip, and jump, I'm heard. If you've ever had a three-body problem, even our closest neighbors, four light years away, took 500 years to get here. There's no way that you went to another fucking galaxy. I'm sorry. In his book, Visitors from Lanulos, Derenberger described more of this planet and its eccentricities compared to Earth. According to Indrid Cold and Darren Berger himself, Lanulos was some 14.6 light years from Earth. But if it's in another galaxy, how does that work? Don't ask too many questions, Skip. You're not oh going to get the right answers. God. 
It was originally settled by people from Earth who traveled there in spaceships, thus implying that the Earthlings could travel in space prior to the 20th century. I love some good ancient aliens, ultra-terrestrial stuff. But that the knowledge of said space travel had been lost for a long, long time. And only more recently rediscovered. What does that mean? Their new planet was much like Earth, though the yearly cycle had only three seasons. Planting, harvest, and cold. Now back in contact with Earth, the Lanulosians can easily pass for human. Cold related that the people of Lanulos are religious. They believe in one god, the father of all, and the creator of all that is good. A big guy that sits on a golden throne with large gray beard and, and angels floating around. Oh, no, I'm making all that up. And maybe even Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> playing Kazam. <laughs> they have a language, but also communicate via telepathy. I don't know why you need both, but sure. Good question. They developed in a non-hostile manner and have no crime or war. Government is loosely organized around a 56-person guilding council whose members are elected every six months. The Spacing Guild? If a member proves unfit... He or she is dismissed and another elected to fill the vacancy. This is getting really deep into the weeds that I don't think is necessary. The people also have no need of clothes and generally walk around in the nude. When Derenberger first visited the planet, he found that he attracted stares because of his clothing and soon adopted the local custom. I bet he did. Mm-hmm. Derenberger also reported that he had traveled to Venus and that its residents were also nudists. Marriage is common among the Lanulosians. When a couple marries, they are, quote, united. <laughs> the male refers to his spouse as his, quote, union. And the female calls her husband her, quote, united. <laughs> Cold indicated that he had a wife and two children. Children go through a lengthy education period that begins as soon as they seem capable of knowing good from evil. Hmm, I don't remember taking that test. Yeah, I don't remember that at all. But their people live to be 125 to 175 years old. That's an Earth time. I was going to say, because, like, that, yeah, I'm not another planet, that would be nothing. The friendly Lanulosians, while not warlike, were engaged in businesses oh. and desired to establish trade with Earth. Oh, great. Pro capitalist. Great. That's all we need. However, they found their attempts to form a relationship rebuffed. Huh. Really? They had approached the American government, but found officials unwilling to guarantee their safety. Damn you, Truman! <laughs> On occasions, when they had attempted to land, they had been met with hostility. Oh, no. <laughs> Cold indicated that they had received wounds from a shotgun on one occasion. <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> they need fucking business. Uh, uh, Derenberger published his most substantive accounts of the Lanulos in 1971. The writer John Keel had a continued fascination with Derenberger's story and included information he had collected in several books of his own over the years. But there has been no independent verification of the existence of a said Lanulos. Oh, you think? Yeah, yeah. Surprise, surprise. One other detail is that Derenberger claimed the Lanulos possessed oriental-style squiggly writing. Oh, god damn it. And also, when they weren't nude, they wore colorful shorts. Wow. Yeah. Well, let's be honest. He's making this up. So. Of course he's making this up. I think that his original account 
I think that has more credence as a story. He had this supposed encounter. He went directly to the police. He was then interviewed, was very earnest about the whole thing. Yeah, that's uh, why they he, put him on TV. Yeah, he, he had no money to make. Well, I mean, this is 1966. You talk about this weird, strange encounter. He was made fun of. It was only after both the Mothman took off and it was kind of tied together with this. And he, he saw that there was money to be made from writing this book. Their further adventures or whatnot, and then the planet. That's like the third act is the further adventures of Indrid Cold. Yeah. <laughs> Young Indrid Cold adventures. Continuing on his adventures to Lanulos, and this apparently didn't didn't work out well for him and his family. Mm-mm. The continuous media invasion into their private life and constant ridicule the family received was a bit much for Darren Berger's wife. She left her husband and took the children with her. As Tanya Bowman, Darren Berger's daughter, wrote about in her book, Out at our farmhouse, I was scared to go to sleep at night because there were guys with guns in the trees wanting to see what was going on and wanting to see the spaceships. And then talks a bit about John Keel's interactions with Injured Cold, which I'd love to talk more about because I think Injured Cold talked quote, real injured cold talk to two people, Darren Berger and John Keel. Mm. I don't really buy into these other... We do need to cover the other sightings. Mm -hmm. I don't think they deserve much time or air, but I can tell you, like, what they are. Sure. I don't see the connection other than someone in a vague, similar area possibly experienced another odd person. Mm Mm-hmm. Eh. Yeah, I know. I mean, well, it's like black-eyed kids or whatever. I mean, it's like... I mean, at least that's more like a men in black. Here's all of these different experiences. They have, you know, or the hat man. Oh. It's the same archetype, but no one's saying... The hat man's name is Jerry Butkus, and I saw Jerry Butkus, you know, October 29th, 1966. Right. Even though that Jerry Butkus, he had a golden wig on and a David Bowie suit, as opposed to the Jerry Butkus that people saw three weeks later, he was bald and had sagging eyes. And, Adopted. Yeah, they just don't match up at all. So why are you saying it's the same thing? Yeah, the Mothman sightings don't really either, but yeah. No, I mean, I... I Yes. Well, because some are like, it's black, it's brown, it's white. You know what I mean? Right. Some are like, it's a big bird. And some are like, no, it's definitely a man. It's a dude. Yeah, I know. I know. It's a thing. I guess I don't know why I should think one feels more legitimate than the other. I guess the Mothman felt less like a flesh and blood creature and more like a spectral warning. Right. I mean, that's kind of what people have taken from it. Yeah. As opposed to like Indrid Cold is, I'm an alien person. (laughs) Right. Of course, that Darren Berger's marriage fell apart wasn't all due to the alien sightings, but because of Darren Berger's extramarital affairs he was having behind his wife's back. There I'm sure none of those had to do with nudist planets uh, in, <laughs> of Venus and Lanulos. Come on. Oh, the teddy bear picnic wasn't real. <laughs> but Darren Berger's wife did say that she also had multiple encounters with Cold or the alien... And according to her, Cold was a space brother and a time traveler. Space brother? I don't know, man. (laughs) Whether that was like, let's get in on the grift and make money as a family kind of thing, and then only after things completely fall apart and we can come out on the truth. I mean, I... Yeah, that's the worst part, is that it's going to spoil whatever 
hope you had in the the idea that this might be true, uh, that his book is going to it's going to take it. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, when you hear what it's about, you you know what you're in for. Yeah, I mean, it goes from like a really interesting, compelling story about something that might have happened to basically Willy Wonka. And uh, that's not what we signed up for. <laughs> it is not. Now, Cold, he did interact with Darren Berger. And there were also interactions with John Keel, who is the writer of the Mothman Prophecies. We have to recognize John Keel. He is a very important figure. He was the one that investigated the Mothman sightings, the Silver Bridge collapse, also apparently injured cold. So his book, The Mothman Prophecies, that's important to look at if you're going to tackle this this topic specifically. Yeah, and it's it's with... John Keel's supposed the interactions with Indrid Cold that a true connective material between Cold and the Mothman encounters really solidifies. Right, because that's that's the thing. Those two events would never have been connected if it were not for the fact that the Indrid Cold incident happened near the Mothman sightings and then the Silver bridge collapse. Keel claimed that what connected these stories was both the boys and Darren Burr reported the entities possessed a huge Joker-like grin, but otherwise looked human, a description which artist Romero perpetuates in this issue. However, investigator Brian Dunning writes that there's no corroborating evidence for Keel's New Jersey story, and the Darren Burger never claimed that injured cold bore such an unusual smile, a fact substantiated by his daughter, who told documentarian Seth Breedlove that cold, whoever he was, Looked like a normal man. Wow, so the grin thing isn't even true? I mean, according to his daughter. Everything we've read about Derenberger's experience is that he had that huge grin. But that has to come just from Keel. I mean, quite possibly. I mean, who else was it coming from? He was the one that put it in his book. Does that change just the whole lore of the character? Yeah. What am I, what am I even reading on? It's <laughs> about right. If it weren't for what happened with the Mothman and the Silver Bridge Collapse... I think this intercold thing, I don't know that anyone would have ever heard of it, ever. No. It's just some crazy guy's story. It's really just a bizarre pseudo-alien encounter at, you know, very early in the accounts of those, of like the, the modern ufology terms. Mm -hmm. But it's its connection to Point Pleasant and its proximity both in – distance and in time. It was an hour away from Point Pleasant. That's kind of one of the biggest things is that they tie these things together because where he was, where he stopped and saw injured cold was only an hour away on the highway from Point Pleasant, which had all these Mothman sightings for a year and a month. And then the, the Silver Bridge collapse happened. People associate all these things. Some of that is because of the movie that Richard had him written film where he tries very hard to tie injured cold in with the lore of mothman and the silver bridge which is also something that's in the book from keel i mean you don't really get a a ton of injured cold in the movie either similar to the book you get that great creepy phone call though that's you get the creepy phone call which is it's awesome 
So Keel supposedly had a couple experiences that convinced them something was reading his mind. One experience was similar to the phone conversation that John Klein, Richard Gere's character, had with injured cold. John Klein is John Keel. Obviously. Instead of hiding his watch, as Richard Gere's Klein did, Keel asked the caller, supposedly cold, where he had misplaced his stopwatch. The voice on the phone told him where it was, and surprisingly, John Keel then found it. There would often be weird beepings and loud screeching noises on the phone whenever cold or, or other supposed entities, perhaps a uh, Demo Hassan or Carl Ordo. Wow, that's deep cut shit right there. Trying to figure these things out or tie them to Demo Hassan. Is that like Asha's demon? Asha or Ashma, the Zoroastrian demon of wrath. It is variously interpreted as wrath, rage, or fury, and his standard is an epithet of a bloody mace. Cool. But there's a lot of, you know, the origins of Indrid Cold and these other seekers. You know, uh, there's been connections to Indra, the Hindu deity. Okay. Indra is the only and first Hindu god created from human parents and possesses transcendent tributes and qualities, including the ability to take innumerable forms, considered a demiurge or a, uh, a fashioner, an entity god who has the power to create and maintain the physical universe. Now, I'm guessing people tie that to Indrid? Um, yeah, but I, I doubt Woody Derenberger knew anything about that. No, again, this is just people tying these things together. Or like... To make it more legitimate. Carl Ardo being some like anagram for Dark Lord, which oh, doesn't boy. even make sense. No, it doesn't. The letters don't all work. People need to know what anagrams are. <laughs> yeah. Again, this is all tied in with John Keel tying these two together. And also, he seems to be a key portion of tying what's what's known as the Grinning Man to Injured Cold. Well, interestingly enough, the Grinning Man as a phenomenon is older than the Injured Cold sighting. Springheel Jack... All sorts of paranormal stuff going back, quite frankly, millennia. I think the unfortunate thing here is that the whole Grinning Man thing seemed to lend some credibility to Woody Derenberger's story. However, John Keel was the one that did that. It wasn't actually Woody. And so, yeah, and it, poor Woody might have just been a crazy idiot. It's true. I, I feel like he possibly did meet somebody, but whether that was the same sure. quote-unquote injured cold that other people encountered, such as the supposed first sighting of cold, which was back in October 16th, 1966. Again, that is... So that's like three weeks before? November 2nd was the Derenberger incident. Right. But supposedly three weeks before, you get the, quote, first sighting. And this is from two boys, Martin Mouse Munov and James Jimmy Yankitis, uh, two kids in New Jersey. Doing the best they can. <laughs> they saw a surreal figure standing near a fence. Was it John Cougar Mellencamp? It might have been. Perhaps it's just John Mellencamp missing the cougar? We can never truly know. Right, you're right. Was it John Cougar Mellencamp? Was it John Mellencamp? Was it Cougar? Was it actually David Essex trying to bite John Cougar style? 
you know, he did call himself just Cougar for like <laughs> for like six months. That's when he had his eau de toilette that he was uh, promoting. Oh, man. So as they were walking, they noticed this figure, and they walked closer. The figure was a tall, bald man wearing a metal green suit who was staring right at them with a huge grin. The idiosyncratic man chased them until they got away from him. UFO sightings were also reported in that same area. I think we both know that he was the Sundown Clown. <laughs> I think I think Sundown, he was a little chiller than this guy. And he was much stranger. Yeah, he was stranger, but that's still pretty fucking weird. 100%. And it's a great story. I'm glad we did that one. Supposedly, Woody's is the second sighting. And then the third sighting, during the same period in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, the Lily family had been reporting poltergeist activity in their home. Diamond-shaped lights. I don't know how that's poltergeist activity. Nobody can make diamonds. <laughs> no one could possibly make diamonds. It's otherworldly. Superman can make diamonds, but nobody else. The Lily's daughter, Linda, was sleeping one night and hold, awoke hold to on, see a hold man. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Her name is Linda Lily. Well, she's a lost lover of Superman. <laughs> she, she loved him in middle school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she shows up after Lois and them. They have a, a blow up and Lois goes away, you know, to Europe for two months. And all of a sudden, Linda Lily shows up on his doorstep. Jesus. All right. So Linda <laughs> was sleeping one night and awoke to a man standing over. It was a man, a big man, very broad. I couldn't see his face very well, but I could see that he was grinning at me. He walked around the bed and stood right over me. I screamed again and hid under the covers. When I looked again, he was gone. Now, if you hear that, or the description of the bold guy grinning who was very tall and had eyes kind of too far apart, and then try to tie this to Woody Derenberger's story, I don't see a connection there personally. It's just odd stories of humanoids that seem to have nothing to do it. And Keel claimed what connected these stories, uh, say of the boys and Derenberger, was that they entities possessed huge Joker-like grins, but otherwise look human. However, investigator Brian Dunning writes that there's no corroborating evidence for Keel's New Jersey story, and the Derenberger never claimed that injured cold bore such an unusual smile, nope. a fact substantiated by his daughter, who told documentarian Seth Breedlove that Cold, whoever he was, looked like a normal man. Yeah, that's that's the thing that really throws the wrench in the whole thing. Like, I would have been totally into the idea that, that Derenberger had an interaction with some crazed alien, but the way that he describes it, it's just like some, I don't know, Little League dad. Doesn't have a giant grin. It comes up and is like, hey, how's it going? Can I talk to you about being an alien? <laughs> He's like, have you heard the good news? Have you heard about Lanulos? We don't wear clothes and we like business. He might have just encountered a fucking Seventh-day Adventist. <laughs> I hate to say it. So I'm trying to get into the grinning man archetype. Mm -hmm. You can liken that to the Cheshire Cat, which Lewis Carroll found inspiration for. In the 16th century sandstone carving of a grinning cat on the west face of St. Wilford's Church Tower in Grappen Hall, which is near uh, Daresbury, Cheshire. Uh, he wrote in his memoirs that he, quote, saw a Cheshire cat with a gigantic smile at Brimstage 
carved into the wall. And this apparently is kind of a not a completely accurate account of a Corbell in Brimstage Hall, Wirral, which used to be in Cheshire. Wow, that meant that British towns, man. I don't know. Um, <laughs> that resembles a, sm- a smiling cat. I think it has to do with the Uncanny Valley. Yeah, I mean, it's psychologically, someone grinning too wide for you is something that is disturbing. Right, right. It, it blends something jovial with menace. Right. Which is why something like the, the Joker works so well. If you look at it evolutionarily, that plays into how, especially primates, bare their teeth to express different things. Sometimes mm-hmm. joy, sometimes menace. And we are biologically programmed to react to those things. But if there's one in between, if there's something in between that we don't understand, we freak out. I mean, that's kind of what the whole Uncanny Valley is. If we don't understand exactly what's happening, we have a really adverse reaction. And so I don't know what Derenberger's real encounter was. We have no idea. I mean, nobody's ever going to know. But maybe Intracold was a real person. Maybe. That'd be really cool if it was. It'd be cold if it was. (laughs) Too cold. It'd be too cold to hold, that's for sure. Most certainly. But also... Too hot to handle. Whoa. <laughs> Just blew your fucking mind. We need some Lanusian hot pads for that. <laughs> you know, the un- Uncanny Valley thing goes back to other human species, like Neanderthals, for instance. We were sort of programmed to only recognize Homo sapien sapien instead of Homo sapien Neanderthal. Uh, so we're like weirded out when we see things that look like us, but not quite. Um, and so I feel like I feel like the whole integral thing is just like it's a deep seated evolutionary thing that he uh, that poor Woody Derenberger. I don't we We have no idea what he actually encountered. We have no idea. We don't. But as far as we can tell, it wasn't a grinning man. That was something that was attached later on. Yeah, that's a John Keel problem. Yeah. Yeah, John Keel has, I mean... He's got some issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We all want John Keel to be the perfect, you know, cryptozoologist, reporter, like, Fox Mulder guy, but he's not. He's got some issues. And he claims all sorts of weird encounters with different cryptids and and cold and everything. Books make money. And, yeah. you know... Don't let uh, truth get in the way of a good story. Yeah, but I don't know how much he believes. I mean, he might believe a lot of it, honestly. He might be... Um, I, I don't know how much he believes. I really don't. I mean, does David Icke believe in what he believes in? Uh, I don't know. I feel like David Icke might be deep enough that he... Well, I don't know. But I, don't I mean, know. if That's he truly... I, yeah, I don't know. He might, but he also might not at all. It, it might be one of those things where David Icke like, got into the thing... And then realized there was money in it and then just still believed in it. But his platform and the way that he's spreading it isn't necessarily coming from the place of his belief, but more just like his ambition. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if people keep buying books and stories and videos about reptile people, mm-hmm. you're going to keep making reptile people videos. John Keel feels similar, but not quite. But I think most likely Woody Derenberger is a sad lonely man 
Well, not anymore. I mean, he's passed away. He was a sad, lonely man who was looking for purpose. And he probably had some sort of weird encounter. Who knows what it was? Maybe it was aliens. I don't fucking know. It doesn't matter. His, his accounts of flying to other planets and interacting with aliens, you know, in another fucking galaxy that somehow is 14 light years away. It's obviously bullshit. What? I kind of feel badly for him. And I really feel badly for his family. I don't know. Maybe the first encounter he had was legitimate. Maybe it was. I don't know. But everything after that. I mean, if you really look at the evidence, the grinning thing, the whole thing, most of that comes from John Keel, not Woody Derenberger. So how much can we really put into that? You know? Yeah, I don't know. But I do know that this encounter of Derenberger's and its odd, even if tangential connection to the Mothman makes the whole thing interesting. It does. Yeah. I mean, and that is fascinating. The legend of both Intracold and the Mothman live on today. And the whole idea that the Mothman may be a portent of things to come still lives on. There was that 1999 Russian nuclear meltdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the Mothman showed up in Chicago. Supposedly. Supposedly. A few times, supposedly. It's a lovely place to visit. Uh, it's good enough for the Blues Brothers. It's good enough for the Mothman. I mean, they got good pie. <laughs> no, that's that's Twin Peaks. And by the way, I'd like to throw in, once again, a reference to the great X-Files episode, Jose Chung from Outer Space, when Fox Mulder sits at the counter at that diner and just orders slices of pie and talks about how good <laughs> the pie is when all the other stuff around is going on. That is one million percent a Twin Peaks reference. And it's very funny. True. I have two more things to say. One. Please do. Supposedly, at least according to... Oprah. According to Oprah. <laughs> according to The Ellen Show. According to Maury Povich. According to the Beyond Lanulos uh, Facebook page. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. And it's a Facebook page? Wow, that's got to be... Woo! That's got to be solid gold. The author of the page had some devastating news oh, in no. September 18th, 2018. No. Injured cold, age 92. Demo Hassan and Carl Ardo died today. No. Wait, wait all at the same time? I guess so. They what? don't say anything more than that. Was it like when they have more info, they will pass it along. Oh, was it a terrorist attack? Uh, was it lupus? It was a lupus. It's, it's a pig man. Pig man escaped and killed him. <laughs> I'm pig man. <laughs> if you guys wouldn't mind liking, share, subscribing. If you could rate us five Lanolosian squiggles. Oh, nice. One of the better kid shows on TV. <laughs> the Lanolosian squiggles. <laughs> Sorry, folks. None of these people wear clothes. So on... Apple Podcast or whatever podcatcher of your choice. We'd nice. greatly appreciate it. Okay, so um, thank you guys for, like Jake said, for tuning in and listening, um, all, both of you. Don't forget to pay your tabs. We appreciate you. Don't forget to clean up after yourselves to some sort of reasonable degree. And from Dispatch Ajax, we would like to say Godspeed, fair wizards. And a big Lanolosian goodbye! <laughs> like it's a Lawrence Welk... <laughs> <laughs> Land alone, yeah, goodbye. <laughs> goodbye from Branson.
I think Indra's wife's name was Kimmy, if I remember right. It's no, it's not Kimmy. There's is it Kimmy? That's what uh, Darrenberger's wife said. Oh no, Kimmy. Kimmy, Kimmy the wife with her oriental squiggles. Oh my god, Kimmy the alien. <laughs> Kimmy the alien. How is that not a sitcom that follows Alf? Kimmy the alien following Small Wonder. <laughs> Tonight on ABC. It's the Lanny Losian Power Hour. <laughs> the Charmings followed by the Lanny Please, go away. 